is the Falcon Around Podcast. Hope you're having a good one. As we record this, if you're joining us live, thank you. If you're catching us on one of our many recorded outlets, thank you as well. It is Tuesday morning, the day after the Home Run Derby, the day of the Major League Baseball All-Star Game. couple weeks till we get into NFL training camps. We do have some NFL to discuss today. We're only a few weeks away from the Olympics and um, Team USA in basketball, the sport we used to dominate like no other, and uh, we might have some issues there. Talk about that as well. Certainly going to talk about the big fight this weekend, and I'm going to go big fight air quotes because what a load of crap the UFC is turning into and I'll explain that. And I'm not a big UFC guy, so you, you might have to bear with me on that. So a lot to get to, but I want to start with the Major League Baseball All-Star Week, if you will. This is the worst week of sports that there is. Because if you think about it, tonight's the All-Star Game. Tomorrow's Game 4 of the NBA Finals. Thursday, there is a smattering of baseball games, but... The reality is there isn't a whole lot going on this week. So while we get to this point every year, this year because of COVID and things starting later, there are some things going on. The the British Open, yes, I still call it the British Open, not the Open Championship like golf snobs do. The British Open goes on this week. So there are some things. There's a little more than normal. But traditionally, this is the, the darkest week sports-wise. Fortunately, we have a lot to talk about this morning. Let me get to it. Last night's Home Run Derby. I want to start there because this is a show that I traditionally, frankly, don't care that much about. I traditionally tune in and then I lose interest rather quickly. There are a few things this time that were different for me. One, Shohei Otani, and I'm going to get to what went on with Stephen A. Smith's comments. I'm going to certainly talk about that. But Shohei Otani is, to me, the guy now that you tune in to see with baseball. There are certain guys through time, if you're standing in a bar talking to somebody and a baseball game's on and a certain guy comes up to bat, you, you kind of stop the conversation, look up at the TV, and pay attention. Shohei Otani is that guy. There haven't been a ton of those people that you look at as different than everybody else. Fernando Tatis Jr., I want to watch him play. He's a different guy than most major league players. Otani, what he's done both on the mound and at the plate, has made him a fascination. I think also the fact he plays on the West Coast, where here we live on the East Coast, we don't see Otani all that much. I think also because he came over from Japan we didn't have a buildup of him. Now, when he came over, we knew of him, and we heard all the stories of him, but it was different than a prospect who's coming up. Think about the New York Yankees and their prospect, the Martian, who we haven't seen him hit a baseball, but we already know about this kid, even though he's only 18 years old, and we're going to follow him until he makes his debut in the Bronx probably three or four years from now. So there will be that knowledge. But Otani coming from Japan, had a mythical thing about him. So now we want to see him perform. And, you know, early on he struggled a little bit, had Tommy John surgery. This year, though, what's gone on with him, the 31 home runs, 
the starting the all-star game on the mound as well as batting leadoff. The fascination, coupled with the fact he's a young guy who runs really well and seems to have a very affable personality. And I think that young people are going to be taken to him. I think they're going to be watching him and seeing a guy that is just different. And we all like different when it's greatness. Michael Jordan's greatness, in large part, comes from the flair of which he played the game. If you're old like me and you saw Michael Jordan play the game as long as I did, you saw him do things that nobody else did. And, and, and as much as we love Jordan because he hit game-winning shots and won championships, watching the flair of which he did all of that was what made Michael Jordan great. Otani, I'm comparing him to Jordan in a way that not in a championship way, but in a flair way. He has a flair about him. So that was a great part of last night. Pete Alonso, the ultimate winner, watching him repeat was great. There was Juan Soto, who's a young player for the Nationals, who's had huge moments in the biggest time of games in World Series, helping the Nationals win a championship a couple years ago. That was huge. Salvatore Perez of the Royals, after Alonso goes out and hits 35 home runs in his round, Sal Perez hits 28, and it was just a great show. Nobody expected him to beat Alonso in that round because of what Alonso did first, but the fact that he did what he did was phenomenal. And then to me, and this is a more personal thing to me, was the Trey Mancini story. Trey Mancini overcame colon cancer, stage three, and was out all of last year. And I say all of last year. It was a shortened year, so it was a little different. But recovered from that and got back to playing baseball. I know a little about stage three colon cancer. I had it. I a cancer survivor very similar to Trey Mancini. So it was very personal to me to watch this guy and I'm sure there are people listening who know what it's like to go through that, to go through the chemo treatments. And let me tell you, if you don't know, it sucks. It plays with your mind. It, you wonder where the outcome's going to be. You wonder, am I going to be able to do this? There are so many uncertainties. And, you know, for me, I'm an old guy with a lot of life experiences. Trey Mancini's a young ball player, and I can only imagine what his thought process was going through it and how much it impacted him because, you know, we all think we're infallible, and then we're not. We hear that word cancer, and we find out, wow, you know, my time here is limited, and it may be more limited than I ever expected. But when you're a young ball player and you hear those words, I can't even fathom. Because me, as an old guy, heard those words, and it's crushing. It really is. But Trey Mancini fought through that, got himself back on the field, having a very good year, and last night, if not for Alonzo just doing something that maybe nobody else in baseball could have done, Trey Mancini wins the home run derby a year after this cancer diagnosis. And again, 
maybe it's just important, more important to me because I went through it and I understand having gone through it, the, the pitfalls that you go through. But this was, this is a superhuman feat that Trey Mancini went through last night and, and, and showed people that you can overcome. And I, I can't tell you, as somebody, again, who can relate, how important that is to see, because there are people right now who are going through it. I'm, I'm fortunately beyond it at this point, and Trey Mancini's fortunately beyond it at this point. But there are people going through chemo right now who I guarantee saw that and the impact that that made on them was something you can't fathom because you're looking for inspiration. You're looking for reasons. You're looking for strength. And Trey Mancini did that last night. And I I can't begin to tell you how much I admire that man for what he did. And, And there's a Rochester tie, too. Trey Mancini's sister lives here in Rochester. So there's a lot of reasons last night that I was very much hoping he would have the night kind of that he had. Of course, as a Mets fan, I wasn't upset that Alonzo won, but it, I just thought it was a great thing. And if you have some time and you want to find out more about Trey Mancini, ESPN has a story on their website, their cover story, if you will. I, I believe that's what it's called about Trey Mancini and his diagnosis and battle, read that. And you'll see why last night was so important. So baseball, I thought, had a great night last night. I didn't think ESPN had a very good night last night. I didn't like the coverage. The split screen, how it ended up, you you didn't see where the ball landed all the time. It it was just strange. I don't know how you do a better job of that, but with all the money spent on that, I I thought they could do better. The little kids who were getting hit by fly balls in the outfield, all right, I get it, it's cute, you know, but one kid got hit and got hurt, and they had to help him off, and Alonzo had to wait because of that. Then there's the, the kids, there's, what, 30, 40 kids in the outfield chasing fly balls? They're wearing masks. Nobody else in the ballpark's wearing masks, but they're required to wear a mask. I thought that was a little strange and a little theatrical as well. So there were some things that were not great about the Home Run Derby, but overall I thought it would have a very entertaining night of watching guys just pound titleists into the upper deck. And, you know, the, the how far they hit them, I think Alonzo hit three or four balls over 500 feet. Several people hit balls 500 feet. Look, these baseballs are wound so tight. They're not the same baseball. It's played up that way because people want to see the... Heck, why not just let them use aluminum bats? If, if you really want to go, you know, yard, and I mean yard out of the stadium, let them use bat, aluminum bats. Why not? If that's what you're selling... You can hear the ping every time. It's just strange to me that MLB feels they have to doctor the baseballs to get these guys to hit the home runs. They're playing in Colorado anyway. The ball's going to travel further anyway. Did you really need to juice the baseballs up that much? But they did. So it was it was a good night. It was it was well done by MLB. 
Of course, I got to point this out. And, and it's a story that I don't think has gotten really enough publicity. First up, the game was supposed to be in Atlanta. Major League Baseball, in reaction to voting law changes in Georgia, moved the game from Atlanta to Colorado. That in itself was a fairly controversial decision. And and it was, in my opinion, an overreaction by Major League Baseball, a woke reaction, if you will, that didn't need to be made. But I'm not going to get into the politics of that decision. I disagreed with it. But it is what it is. They made that decision. Fortunately, there was a hotel maid in Colorado who reported seeing what she saw when cleaning a room. Several long guns, 1,000 rounds of ammunition, and she reported seeing that. And Four men were arrested. Now, they haven't said what the plot was with these guns, but it was in Denver, and the All-Star Games there it's not hard to deduce that this very well may have had an incredibly ugly situation had this hotel maid not reported seeing what she had seen and which led to the arrest and hopefully foiled a plot to to possibly have a mass shooting at the all-star game it, it just could have been horrific so Whoever that maid is, whoever that hotel person is, she should be honored by throwing out the first pitch tonight at the Major League All-Star Game because she saved lives, a lot of lives. And I, I, you can't fathom what could have been, how bad it could have been. So that's one of those stories you start to hear and you're like, why am I not reading more about this? Is it... You know, one of those things they don't want to give more details because they don't want the fear factor. Well, you find all of that in a hotel room after what happened in Vegas at that concert a few years back. To me, that's enough to to be a lot afraid. So props to whoever the hotel maid was who found that. Props to her for doing what she did and reporting what she saw and saving many, many people. The other thing that bothered me a little bit about the game being moved to Colorado, not for political reasons, but why are you rewarding the Colorado Rockies franchise with an all-star game, which is a huge event to have at your ballpark, huge financially? Why are you rewarding them when last year they moved on from Nolan Arenado, probably the best third baseman, in my opinion, he is the best third baseman in baseball. They got a bag of balls back, and they're even paying part of his salary to the Cardinals. Now they've got Trevor Story, who is a very good shortstop, who's likely to be traded in the next couple weeks because they're not going to pay him. So you've got a franchise that's not trying to win. They're trying to shed money, and you're rewarding them with an all-star game. It makes very little sense to me. There are small market teams that are trying to win. Reward them. Don't reward the small market team that's doing anything but trying to win. I just didn't understand that. And as far as Trevor's story, you look at the Rockies are 11 games under 500 in a tough division because both the Dodgers, Giants, and Padres, I should say both, all the Dodgers, Padres, Giants are having very good years. 
the Rockies are 18 games back in the West. You look at his six-year career, 274 average, 145 home runs, 865 OPS. This year is down from that, and, and it very well may be the trade situation hanging over his head. He's hitting only 249. He's got 11 home runs, 42 RBIs, but his OPS of 765 is tied for his career low OPS. That said, this is a guy, I think, who garners a lot coming back. Now, the question I have is, who makes the play for him? The obvious answer is the New York Yankees, because they need a shortstop. They go get Trevor Story, similar contract demand, I would think, to what the Mets signed Francisco Lindor for, for what the Padres signed Fernando Tatis Jr. for. Are the Yankees willing to go with a 10-year deal for Trevor Story. If not, then you don't make the trade now because as a rental, you better make the playoffs. And I'm not sure that the Yankees are in position to make the playoffs even if they acquire Trevor Story. So if you're not prepared to sign that deal, to give the guy a deal, you do one of two things. Either it's a rental to give you over the, get you over the top this year where you think you can win the World Series, or you stay away from them unless you want to sign them. And, and, and the Yankees, to me, should be a team that should look to sign a shortstop. It's going to cost them big, and I frankly think it will cost them Aaron Judge, potentially, because Judge, again, after next season is a free agent, and you've got to make the decision on him. So can you have three $30 million players? Remember, Giancarlo Stanton, already a $30 million player. So... We'll see how that plays out with Trevor's story. It's going to be a very interesting thing to keep monitoring. Yesterday, prior to the Home Run Derby, jackass loudmouth Stephen A. Smith made some comments on ESPN on his show, First Take, that I'm sure will be blown over. And I think because Stephen A. is the highest paid employee at ESPN, and he's also the reason I don't watch ESPN anymore. Frankly, it's it every time he comes on. I love the Scott Van Pelt show, the Sports Center at night. It's it's honestly the best thing ESPN does. Unfortunately, right now because the NBA Finals are going on, and that's Stephen A's bag. He has Stephen A on there every night. I I, I don't watch the show. I cannot listen to this man because he doesn't do his research. And he says things that just simply shouldn't be said. And he did so yesterday, twice actually. But the biggest thing he said yesterday, the more important thing that he said, was in talking about Shohei Otani. And basically what he said is he can't be the face of baseball because he doesn't speak English and and because he needs an interpreter. And you would think a person who is of color, would know better than to say something so ignorant. First off, Shoei Otani does speak English. He's just not as comfortable in an interview situation. Therefore, he has an interpreter to make sure he gets it right. Same as Ichiro did for years. Ichiro spoke fine English. But in interview situations... These guys are way more comfortable in their native tongue. And, well, frankly, who wouldn't be? 
if I spoke a second language and I was being talked to so the entire world could hear me, I would want to make sure I knew that language down. And I wouldn't want to miss something. I think this is something that people think about when they're very ignorant. You don't speak the language. Get the hell out. Well, that's that's a great way to think if your mindset is that of a 1920s American. It's 2020. Let's show a little, um, I don't know, compassion. Let's show a little foresight. Let's be accepting. This is the great melting plot, is it not? Isn't that the point of all this? So for Shohei Otani to not be the face of baseball because you don't like the fact he uses an interpreter, that's a you problem, not a Shohei Otani problem. You tell me that some little kid who is watching Otani hit bombs and then go out on the mound and flame guys gives a rat's ass that he uses an interpreter? Think back to your childhood and think back to the guys that you loved as a kid. Did you know what they sounded like? Did you ever listen to them interviewed? I don't know. Tom Seaver, I grew up a Mets fan, and Seaver was the franchise. I don't know that I ever heard Tom Seaver speak until he became part of the broadcast team for the Mets for a little while. I think that was the first time I ever heard Tom Seaver speak. Didn't take away from the fact that I enjoyed watching him pitch. As a little kid, and that's what marketing for baseball needs, is to get little kids on board because they become old men like me who watch baseball. You don't care what a guy sounds like when he talks. You just want to watch him play. And think of the great, diverse, young talent that is in the game right now. Vlad Jr., Fernando Tatis Jr., Otani. These guys are very diverse, and guess what? They're great, and they're fun to watch. And they can't be the face of baseball because they need an interpreter? If Stephen A. Smith wasn't a person of color, he would be fired today. He would be out of a job. But instead, he will go on the air. He's probably on the air right now as we speak, backpedaling and spinning this in a way that ESPN's going to just gloss over it. But if it was a different member of the ESPN family, if it was Max Kellerman, the guy who sits on the other side of the table from that blowhard, if it was Max Kellerman, he'd be off the show, he'd be fired, he'd be gone. But Stephen A. is the golden boy. He can do no wrong. This comes a day after he said things about the team that beat Team USA in basketball. It was incredibly disparaging. Nigeria beat Team USA. Nigeria has guys with names that are tough to pronounce. Michael Benege, remember that guy from Syracuse? He's on that team. You look at the spelling of Benege and you go, how do I say this name? Stephen A. tried to make jokes about it. How about give this team credit for just kicking the crap out of an American team that should have beat him by 50? So... Stephen A. now two days in a row has gotten away with something that would get another person fired. Again, this is a man who makes $12 million a year. I remember a few years back when, and I'm going to get to Conor McGregor eventually, but when McGregor and Floyd Mayweather, who is a 
just a piece of crap. Several domestic violence arrests. One of the worst human beings walking the face of the earth. Anyway, Mayweather was fighting McGregor, and this is a big money event for ESPN. And they sent Stephen A. to hang out with him and, and do a story on him. I found that revolting. You're glorifying a scumbag who is a serial domestic violence individual. Stephen A. goes along with it. Again, ESPN, for all its wokeness, has a couple different sets of rules. And if you don't have a problem with that, well, that's fine. I do. And it's why I very rarely watch ESPN. I watch very limited things on ESPN and watch only live games and Scott Van Pelt on ESPN. I simply can't take it. And I'm not a big political person. But right is right and wrong is wrong. And if you're going to be all about doing things right, then do it right. Don't be a hypocrite. And I find ESPN incredibly hypocritical. And again, this whole thing with Stephen A., it's going to go away. You watch. Today, he did issue a very nice apology last night. I'm sure his people and ESPN got together and wrote this out last night and it was a good apology, and I'm sure today he'll have another good apology. But it doesn't take away from what he said. And oh, by the way, the fact that Shohei Otani is the face of baseball, let me see. If you're a brand and all of a sudden you can become a global brand, you think people in Japan weren't up last night watching the Home Run Derby to watch their hero play? You think Major League Baseball isn't benefiting greatly from the fact that Shohei Otani is from Japan, same as they did Ichiro, same as they do Vlad Jr. being Dominican and Fernando Tatis Jr. being from the Dominican, having roots, I should say, in the Dominican with his dad. You, you're telling me that's not a benefit to the globalization of Major League Baseball? I think Stephen A. needs a geography lesson, and I think he needs a lesson in compassion as well. And hopefully ESPN gives it to him, but I'm not holding my breath for it. Moving on to the NFL. The ESPN, ironically enough, polled 50 executives, coaches, scouts, and came up with a ranking of their top 10 quarterbacks. The top 10 list went like this. Patrick Mahomes, number one, Aaron Rodgers, two, Brady, three, Russell Wilson, four, Josh Allen, five, Stafford, six, Dak Prescott, seven, Lamar Jackson, eight, Justin Herbert, nine, Kyler Murray, ten. First, I must point out that Deshaun Watson, who on a similar list last year, was number four. Deshaun Watson was taken off the ballot because of the uncertainty of his availability following the accusations that 20-some-odd massage therapists have accused him of sexual assault. It's a problem. So here's this list, and and obviously what we want to look at is the person at number five, Josh Allen. And the question is, is that the right spot for Josh? Is it too high, too low? Well, Patrick Mahomes, number one's a no-brainer. To me, that's easy. Aaron Rodgers... Number two, again, easy. Brady, three, you look at what he did last year in winning the Super Bowl with the Buccaneers. It's just incredible. At age 
43 to be able to do what he's doing belongs at three. Russell Wilson at four. He, he's not a one-man show anymore. He was, but now with D.K. Metcalf, Tyler Lockett, they've got a nice receiving core up there. Still need an offensive line and a running game, and that would be a nice thing for Russell Wilson to have. But he is an incredible athlete, an incredible quarterback. He belongs there. Josh at five. Is Josh Allen better than Matthew Stafford, who's at six? So let's let's start with this discussion. Stafford, I think, is very underrated because of where he played and the success that the Lions had or lack thereof. I'm looking forward to seeing what Matthew Stafford will do this year, playing for the Rams and playing for Sean McVay, having the wideouts that he's going to have. I think it's an opportunity for the Rams, especially with Cam Akers and the offensive line. They should be able to run the ball. I think Stafford's going to have a great year this year. It'll be fun to watch. That said... Josh Allen's one year versus Stafford's eight, nine years. I think Stafford's more of a sure thing at this point than Josh Allen. Dak Prescott, I thought, was very high on this list. This year's a big year for Dak. He finally got paid. Well, last year he got paid as well, but it was on the franchise tag. But now he's got a long-term deal. It's going to pay him $40 million a year. He's got to justify that contract. He's got the weapons around him. If the Cowboys aren't a 10-win team, Dak Prescott goes down as one of the more overpaid players in the NFL. Who would you rather have for this year, Dak Prescott or Josh Allen? I'd rather have Josh Allen for this year. I think there's more potential upside for Josh Allen. Now, if you're asking me who's more of a sure thing, it's Dak Prescott because I have more of a body of work to choose from. I know what he can do. Lamar Jackson or Josh Allen? As great as Lamar is, and he is great, people still want more from him. They want the Ravens to get more wide receivers so he can throw the ball down the field and be a more wide-open quarterback. I don't care about that. This guy wins football games. It may be unconventional. It may be through his feet. It may be a short passing scheme. He wins football games. It's all that matters. He's spectacular to watch. He's done it longer and more consistent. But I'd rather have Josh Allen because, again, the one thing I haven't seen Lamar do and the one thing to me that great quarterbacks have to do, and Josh Allen has done this, is the ability with a minute and a half left, you need a touchdown, drive your team down the field through the air and get that touchdown to win a game. I've seen Allen do it. I haven't seen Lamar do it. I think Allen is the better quarterback going forward. Justin Herbert's at nine. Justin Herbert's very similar to Josh Allen in many ways. Herbert's a big, strong, athletic kid. So is Josh. He's also had one great year. So is Josh. The question is, who do you believe more this year? For my money, it's Josh Allen this year because of this. Defensive coordinators spend a lot of time in the offseason picking apart what a quarterback does well, and they try to figure out a way to stop them. Justin Herbert is going to have to adjust to the adjustment because there's going to be an adjustment to take away what he does well. And when that happens, he's going to have to adjust to it to continue to succeed. Allen, in a way, has already faced that adjustment. Now, there will be a tweaking and more adjustments this year. But, He's 
made the strides while the defensive coordinators have done their due diligence to figure out ways to stop him. Herbert has to do the same thing. Kyler Murray, similar to Justin Herbert in that he is now a guy who has to face the adjustment. But Kyler Murray is so freakishly athletic, so freakishly fast. I don't think he's as good of a thrower of the football as people give him credit for, but I think he might be an even better runner than Lamar Jackson is, which is crazy to say, but I, I watching him, I feel like he's faster than Lamar Jackson. So we'll see where that plays out. I thought that was too high for Kyler Murray. Other people, not mentioned Deshaun Watson, obviously. We talked about him. Matt Ryan, look at what he's done for how long he's done it. You know what you're getting. Ryan Tannehill, the last couple of years in Tennessee have been fantastic. Now you add Julio Jones to that. Kirk Cousins is what he is, and what he is is a pretty good quarterback. May not be a great quarterback, may not be worth the money that you're paying him, but he's a pretty good quarterback. Derek Carr. I've never been a big believer in Derek Carr, but he continues to be consistent. Carson Wentz, two years ago, Carson Wentz was where Josh Allen is. He's the fear of Josh Allen for Bills fans who don't yet believe in him because Carson Wentz was going to be the great quarterback in Philly, and then he wasn't. That's the fear with Josh Allen to some. Baker Mayfield. Baker's a true leader. And, and in his time in Cleveland, he's changed that franchise and the perception of it. And, and people still do not like Baker Mayfield because of his personality. I'm not sure if he's ever going to become a great quarterback, but I know he's the right quarterback for that team and can do the job in Cleveland. And then one other player got votes, and I found this interesting. It was Joe Burrow. Burrow, who had very good games before he tore up his ACL last year. It'll be interesting to see how he rebounds from that. He's got some weapons. They improved the offensive line. We'll see where it goes from here for Joe Burrow, but I thought it was a little early to give him this vote. So Josh, in my opinion, I'd put him more 6-7, but 5 is about right. He's got a chance to move up on this list, and hopefully he doesn't slide down on this list. Now what really... It both gives me pause and and impresses me, is last year ESPN did the same list. Josh Allen received no votes. So a year after receiving no votes, he's now the fifth-best quarterback in the minds of 50 scouts and executives and coaches. Ironically enough, last year, Sam Darnold did get a vote. I didn't know Colin Coward was part of this panel, but whatever. Sam Darnold got a vote last year, and I think that's where... My reservation lies with signing Josh Allen, and we're kind of morphing into another topic, that Pro Football Focus put out a story that the Bills are playing with fire if they don't sign Josh Allen this year. To me, it is much more prudent for the Bills to wait on a Josh Allen extension. He has had one great year, two okay years, and frankly, I've been a believer in Josh Allen since he was drafted. I thought this is a kid who could grow into becoming a very good quarterback. And last year, he was a great quarterback. Now, this year, 
He needs to be a great quarterback again. And if he's a great quarterback again this year, then by all means, give him that extension because you're going to sign a guy that you believe in, you know what you got. You do it for two years, it's a trend. You do it for one year, it could be a fluke. You don't want to pay a fluke. You can't pay a fluke because if you do, your franchise is doomed going forward. And again, I'm not saying Josh Allen's a fluke. He could be. I hope he isn't. I don't think he is. But you have to make sure he isn't. So why pay him this year when the salary cap has been greatly reduced, whereas next year the new TV deal kicks in and the salary cap has grown exponentially? Why pay him now when you don't have to, when you can have more evidence of what he's truly going to be? It just makes no sense. And the third part of this and it's the part of the story I disagreed with most from Pro Football Focus, playing with fire. Every quarterback gets more money than the guy who signs before him. So if Aaron Rodgers signs first, Russell Wilson signs next, Russell Wilson's going to get more than Aaron Rodgers. And then Patrick Mahomes is going to get more than Russell Wilson, and so on and so forth. So look at the quarterbacks. Who's going to be signed? Who's going to set the bar that the Bills then have to go above? Well, there's two names. Baker Mayfield and Lamar Jackson. Those are the two guys that could likely get paid. Lamar Jackson's going to get paid big. The Bills are going to have to pay Josh Allen more than the Ravens are going to pay Lamar Jackson. But Lamar Jackson's not going to make $10 million a year more than Patrick Mahomes. It's going to be a few million dollars a year at the most. So Josh Allen, a million dollars or so more a year than Lamar Jackson. Baker Mayfield's not going to get the $40 million contract, in my opinion. I don't think he's that quarterback, and I don't think the Browns will pay him that money. And I frankly hope that Baker Mayfield's smart enough to realize that and take a less deal to, to stay in Cleveland and continue with what they're building in Cleveland. So playing with fire means that you're going to get priced out or something negative is going to happen. I don't see that happening in this situation. The quarterbacks on that list that I read, they've all been paid. They've all gotten their big deals other than Baker and Lamar and Josh because they're the young quarterbacks who haven't yet gotten paid, in Herbert as well. But Herbert's not going to get an extension in year two. It's not going to happen. So I think there's very little risk for the Bills, actually, to wait a year on Josh Allen. And, and frankly, you don't have to wait a year. Through eight games this year, if Josh is playing similar to the level he played at last year, then by all means, pay him. Get it done. They're going to get it done. Any Bills fan who's worried about Josh not getting a contract, it's not going to happen. He's changed the face of this franchise. Sean McDermott, Brandon Bean, Josh Allen, those three guys have changed the perception of the Buffalo Bills, the way the Buffalo Bills are going to do business over the next decade, and the fact that they've become a viable franchise for the foreseeable future. Because once you have your quarterback, you have what it takes in the NFL. 
The Bills, I think they have their quarterback, but I'm not certain. Let's be certain, then write the check, and then stop worrying about it. And I think that's what should happen. We'll see if that's what does happen. The NBA Finals are ongoing. The Suns now lead 2-1. to one. Last week when I talked to you, I didn't think Giannis was going to play. Well, not only is he playing, he's been an absolute beast through the three games of the Finals. First game, he had 20 points, 17 boards. Playing what I thought, I don't want to say timidly, tentatively. He didn't trust his knee, in my opinion, but there were a few points where he was explosive, and you could tell if you've ever had knee injury, the mental side of it, overcoming a knee injury is very difficult. Trusting that your leg is strong enough to do what you want to do is very hard to get used to when you start to come back from a knee injury. When you look at Giannis, to me it was obvious that Giannis has overcome the mental side. I thought game one, he was tentative because of it. Game two, 42-12 and in a losing effort, he wasn't tentative. Game three, he was definitely, the knee is no longer a thought, 41-13. and He is putting up huge numbers. But to me, game three, the difference was a couple things. One, the Suns' defense, especially the three-point shots, wasn't very good. The Bucks got a ton of of open threes. They shot almost 40% from three for the game. Drew Holiday had a big game, 21-9. and Middleton had a very good game in addition. He was 18-7 rebounds, six assists. You look at what the Bucs did, though. To me, it's, it's so funny because last year in the bubble, if you remember the Miami Heat getting to the finals and playing against the Lakers, you had guys like Tyler Hero, and the three-point shooter, Robinson. These kids didn't have the opposing crowd in their ears. They were comfortable. It's like playing pickup in a gym. Road game, home game, didn't matter. You're going to the gym, nobody's there, you're just playing. Now, with crowds back, home court advantage is huge. And what you're seeing are the role players much more comfortable at home and playing much better and tentative and not as good on the road. Guys like Bobby Portis, P.J. Tucker, much better at home. There's another factor in this series, and a much bigger factor than I thought. Dario Sarkic is out with a knee injury. He won't play again this season. Without him, when DeAndre Ayton goes to the bench in, in Game 3, got in foul trouble, so this was a really big deal, you bring in Frank Kaminsky. Kaminsky just can't play that position. He can't play the five. He's not a five. Can't play it defensively. Doesn't give them enough offensively. It's it's one of those things when you look at him on the floor, it's a big advantage for the Bucs, especially if Giannis has things going well. The, the other name to keep an eye on, and I haven't mentioned it yet, is Pat Connaughton. Because this is a kid who can do a lot of really good things for the Bucks, Connaughton is one of those guys, if he gets going, can hit some shots. can also drive and dish. There are a lot of things he can do to make his team better. 
So when you look at what Connaughton has done at home in one game versus on the road in those two games, the Bucks need him to be an impact player going forward. The UFC fight this weekend ended after one round. Conor McGregor and Dustin Poirier, they were fighting for the third time. McGregor beat Poirier back in 2015. They fought earlier this year. Poirier kicked the crap out of McGregor. McGregor in this one was getting the crap kicked out of him again in the first round and then broke his leg horrifically and now is out. UFC has a problem. Conor McGregor is a huge draw. Why is he a huge draw? I don't know. He's a flaming asshole to start with. He's not nearly the fighter he was before he left in 2016. If you look at Conor McGregor, what he's done since he walked walked away and retired in 2016, he's fought Floyd Mayweather, a fight that he had no chance of winning, and made, what, $30, $40 million for that fight. He then has fought four times in the UFC. He lost badly to Khabib, lost badly to Poirier the first time, and then, of course, this time. And he beat Cowboy Donald Cerrone. That that was his one win. Cerrone's not a great fighter. He's just a guy. But you look at what Dana White does, and smartly, he has made literally billions of dollars by manipulating his sport. Now, the UFC and the WWE are extremely similar sports. WWE is scripted. We know the outcomes. UFC is not, and I'm not saying they're fixed. I'm saying when Dana White has a charismatic fighter, somebody that he knows he can sell, he will do everything he can to put him against guys he knows that are going to win, or women, he knows that they can beat, and continue to grow the star. Did it with Conor McGregor. Did it masterfully. And McGregor played in, and McGregor went from a guy who at one point in his life was homeless, now he's worth a couple hundred million dollars, according to Forbes. He did it with Ronda Rousey. Ronda Rousey was a beautiful woman who happened to be a very good UFC fighter. But she didn't fight anybody. She fought people that they knew she'd beat easily. And then they had to put her in a situation where it was going to be a tough fight. She got her ass kicked a couple times and went away. What Dana White has done with McGregor is continue to put him in situations where McGregor, after he built him up, is still such a star that it doesn't matter if he wins or loses anymore. Eventually, there's going to be a fallout. Now, immediately after the fight, Dana White's talking about Poirier McGregor 4. There's going to be another one. And the question I got to ask, if I'm Dustin Poirier, why am I going to do this? McGregor gets about $3 million for showing up. Dustin Poirier's net worth is estimated to be between 4 and $6 million. McGregor gets more for showing up than Poirier's worth in his career. It doesn't make sense why he would continue to fight McGregor if he's not getting paid. But yet Dana White will find a way to make that happen. The UFC needs McGregor very badly because they don't have another star at this point. Got very good fighters, but there's not that one star that when you put him on a pay-per-view, 
or put her on a pay-per-view, you're going to sell the fights the way Rousey did, McGregor did. They need to develop that. Dana White will find somebody, will manipulate the person's fights, and eventually McGregor will go away. But until the replacement for McGregor comes up, you're going to see him continue to get big money fights that, frankly, he doesn't deserve at this point. Team USA basketball, the Olympics are coming up, and you know this is one of those things that for forever in a day, the USA dominated basketball. We dominated this sport. We won gold medal year after year after year, except in 72 when we got screwed, and in 88 when John Thompson thought it was more important to play his style of basketball than to assemble the best players and just win basketball games. But I'm not holding a grudge against John Thompson. Actually, I am. But it changed the way basketball was. And then the Dream Team came along in 92, and ever since then, it's been trying to recreate a Dream Team using NBA players. Well, this group of NBA players, including Damian Lillard, Kevin Durant, Jason Tatum, Jeremy Grant from Syracuse. There's a lot of really good players on this team. They lost to Nigeria. Think about that. Team USA basketball. And and, and I don't care if it's Kevin Durant and a bunch of college kids, D1 college kids. They lose to Nigeria. That's one thing. Last night they lost the second game in as many attempts, these exhibitions, to Australia. Australia doesn't have Ben Simmons, who's the best player from Australia, but they don't have him. And I know, insert your Ben Simmons joke here, he's the best player from Australia. He's not playing for the Australian national team. And yet, they beat the U.S. Do you not think this is a big deal? The U.S., in its last 56 games, prior exhibition games, prior to this two-game stretch, was 54-2. and 54-2. and two. They're now 0-2 this year. They play a game again tonight against Argentina. Argentina's got a good team. But this shouldn't matter. I, I, I'm shocked to think that the U.S. team is going to go to the Olympics and have to battle to win a gold medal. It should be a walkover to get this. And yet it's not. And some of these young players who are great young players like Jason Tatum and Dame Lillard, it's time for them to step up and become great winners, not great players. Both of them have had huge moments. I'd love to see them have huge moments for our country going forward in the Olympics. And one last thing today, and I haven't talked about this, and it's Shakari Richardson, the young woman who won the hundred meter women's 100-meter dash at the U.S. Olympic trial, subsequently tested positive for marijuana and was banned from the Olympic team. And a huge outcry about that because she tested positive for what's clearly not a performance-enhancing drug. Why is she being tested for marijuana? Why shouldn't she be allowed to go? For her part, Shakari Richardson has handled things exceedingly well, and I give her a ton of credit. Her tweet after things came out about this was, I'm human, and and I much respect to her for this. But people seem to go above and beyond in trying to defend her for 
allowing her to go. Where do I come down on this? I think it's a stupid rule. Marijuana is now legal in many states. I personally don't think it's a big deal. If a woman who is a track and field athlete like Shikari Richardson decides to smoke weed on the side and still can go out and win, that's her business. It's, again, not something that's performance enhancing. Yet, it is something that's banned by the Olympics. And every Olympic athlete knows that. Well, what's going to be interesting, does the Olympic basketball team get tested as well? Because here's where I find it a little interesting. Weed is not tested for in the NBA. You know why? Because the NBA loves their weed. So when you've got a bunch of NBA players in the Olympics, are they being tested for weed as well? That could get very interesting if that's the case. Or is it just the track and field athletes because they're testing for performance-enhancing drugs? I don't know the answer to that question. But everyone knows the rule. Weed is tested for you can't smoke weed and be in the Olympics. Shikari Richardson knew that rule. She made a choice, and you know, by her words, she was grieving for the loss of her biological mother. She made a bad choice. She's now paying for that bad choice. As much as I think it's a stupid rule, I think the fact that she's banned from the Olympics is okay. It's a stupid rule that she knew of and chose to break. She made a choice. She's being penalized. It's her choice. She did this to herself. Yet the outcry, you would think this is the greatest injustice of all time. But again, I do want to know if the NBA players who are going over to play in these Olympics are going to be tested as well. That I haven't heard, and I'll be shocked if every NBA player that's on that team tests clean for marijuana. Again, they don't test for weed in the NBA. So how do they get around it with the Olympics? Something to keep an eye on going forward. That's it for this week. We'll be back next week. So will Major League Baseball and uh, trade deadline coming up in training camp just a few weeks away for the NFL. So we'll keep you posted on all that. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a good week. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falcon Around Podcast.